Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, I want to plug, put in another reminder, June 18th, Father's Day, we will be doing a live Q&A episode here broadcast at 10 a.m. Mountain Standard Time right from this location here. I will be taking your questions live instead of uh, from the comments section, although of course I'll have some backup questions ready if need be. I will have better audio and video this time than I did on my 100th episode. I've learned a few things uh, since the last time I did that. Uh, this camera here will be my webcam, and uh, so you should get a nice clear picture, nice good sound, and we should get a great show. Uh, that week, and I'm really, really looking forward to that. So again, June 18th, Father's Day, 10 a.m. Mountain Standard Time, be here for that. I definitely would like to interact with you guys on a live basis, and that's how we'll do it. Also, I have not plugged this in a very long time, but Critical Merchandise is a thing, and uh, these shirts, and uh, this is Xenu here, <laughs> and uh, other merchandise and other shirts and whatnot, uh, hats, caps, you know, all that kind of thing are available there. And you can uh, look that up uh, at the um, spreadshirt.com uh, Chris Shelton uh, site. There's a link to it in the notes below. And also uh, there's a, I think over here or over here, one of these two corners here has a little button that you can click and go right to it. So anyway, check that, check that out. It's a great way to get something from me and give something back to me that helps support this channel as well, of course, as signing up on my Patreon account and becoming a supporter of this channel. Because uh, you guys are the ones who keep this thing going. I just want to remind you of that from time to time because your help is, uh, is wonderful and very, very appreciated. All right, let's get on with your questions this week. Andrea Ainsworth. I have family still in Scientology, which is very frustrating for me at times. I can't wait until they're out, but their arrogance, certainty, stubbornness, and inability to listen make me think they may never get out. Even after 20 years, the alternate route clear, superpower processing, and large donations, my dad is not clear. What could be the reason for this? Also, I asked him if he got to the top of the bridge and didn't have superpowers and all the things promised, would he then look at the other side? His response was, I've gotten enough out of it already to still be worth it. Obviously, it is life-changing for some people, so what is it that actually works? I know you say that you can find the parts that work elsewhere in the world. I'm wondering if you intend to sort through the mix of truth and lies within Scientology technology and share with us in the form of a book slash books. Also, I know for me, it wasn't really the processing that made me feel any better, but just the thought that I had the right path and future access to powerful truth that would change me and the world for the better. How much of the improvement in people is due to processing and how much do you think is just the high from believing you have the answer to life and are working on getting to ultimate freedom, etc.? Thanks for the question, Andrea. It's a really good one and uh, there's a lot here. So uh, first off, let me just say that in regards to your family who are still in Scientology, um, the, the, the way you talk to them or the way you should go about finding out from them what the deal is, is to ask them politely, you know, in a, in a sort of a non-confrontational manner, you know, what do you get out of this? Why are you still doing it after all these years when you're, you know, have not achieved the state of clear or OT or whatever, you know, and, and try not to be challenging, but just really 
receptive. What's the deal? Give me, tell me, tell me what the deal is, right? And get them to tell you. Because the deal is that everybody is involved in Scientology or any other destructive cult or any activity for that matter for their own reasons, their own individual reasons. It's not a, it's not a you know, Scientology offers a, a, a series of methods that are kind of one size fits all. But everybody's reasons for being there are different and unique to them. So you have to kind of solicit that information from them. And that should potentially give you uh, information, ammunition, you could consider it, to then feed back to, you know, okay, well, you know, for, not necessarily in that conversation, although it could happen there, but, you know, somehow, why are they doing it? What is it that's hooked them into it? And then you could use that to more specifically maybe attack, and very subtly, I use the word attack, and I mean, I don't mean like, er. But, you know, to go back in on the person and deal with what could get them out of it, right? Uh, that information would be valuable uh, in that regard. So, so that's how I would tackle that. Because I, I can't tell you why it is that your dad is still involved in Scientology. I got, I got no idea. But whatever it is, there's something he thinks he's going to continue to get out of it. And what you, the point you made in your question was great because it very well could be that the promise or the hope of this advanced spiritual enlightenment and, and personal spiritual immortality that are promised by Scientology, just the idea of that could be enough to keep someone going. Whether they're experiencing every session is some big huge gain or not for them, and odds are they aren't. Odds are sessions are, you know, okay, I feel a little better. Uh, maybe sometimes, wow, that was really interesting. You know, they, they do the auditing session and they're like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that before. And then, you know, two days later, they can't even remember it. <laughs> you know, they feel better. They know they feel a little better. And it just goes in and out, you know, and that's kind of how the auditing works. And so, um, so, so the thing that keeps them going to it is not that their last session was so great they can't wait to have another one. You know, sometimes that happens, but more often it's, this is what I need to be doing in order to eventually get to this big prize I'm going to get. And if I leave and I stop doing this, then I'm never going to get there. And that's a, that itself is a huge reason for people to stay with, with a thing and, and a good reason why people stay with things that don't seem to be providing them any help or support or, or seem to be accomplishing their goals is, yeah, but if I just stick with it, I'll get there, you know, and, uh, and they'll put up with a lot of nonsense and a lot of grief uh, because they think that eventually they'll be getting to this wonderful place, you know, and Scientology is far from the only example of that. So I hope that might help uh, give you some ideas of what to do to maybe push the, the, the ball down the road a little bit to getting them out. But it's an individual conversation with, with each and every family member. You can't do this in a group situation. You can't sit them all down and go, okay, everybody, tell me why you got in and, and then I'm going like, to deal with that and, and convince you to get out of it. it you know, no, don't, it's not like that, right? It's much more subtle, much more time-consuming to, to, to deal with people's reasons for being stuck into Scientology. And I... It's, and it's not because, just to be clear for anybody who might not have listened to everything I've said about this in the past, 
it's not getting them out of Scientology just for the sake of getting them out of Scientology or just because you happen to disagree with their belief system. You, you, you want to get people out of Scientology and out of any other destructive cult situation because it's destructive. There are, there are so many lies told. There are so many misconceptions they have as Scientologists about what they're doing. And they're, and they're being taken advantage of in terms of their contribution of time and money, especially money. Um, and you want to get somebody out of that situation because they're being taken advantage of, not because you happen to not believe in Xenu and they do or whatever, right? I mean, that's not the situation, Andrea, with your dad because he's not even clear. But that's the, that's the, the, the compelling reason to want to do something about it. And I just want to be clear about that because I don't, you know, I, I don't want to have any um, misconceptions or misideas about why I am such an advocate for getting people out of that situation. It's not because I'm trying to say that they don't have a right to think the way they want to or believe what they want to. It's because they're in a situation where they're being um, at a severe disadvantage. They, they do not have fully informed consent as to what's going on, right? And, uh, and they are being taken for a ride in terms of the financial contributions. So that all being said, I hope that answer helps you uh, with your question. Joseph Smith. I have read a few different versions of a story claiming that back when Hubbard was a pulp science fiction author, he told his fellow writers that he was going to found a religion because that's where the money is, or that he made a bet with Robert Heinlein that he could successfully found a religion. There are also stories that some of the other authors helped him brainstorm ideas that ended up in Scientology, thinking that they were all just playing around and not realizing that Hubbard would actually use their ideas to found a cult. Harlan Ellison also told a story about this. Do you think this story is true, or at least possibly true? Sure, it certainly could be true, and I've read accounts and, and uh, I've read Harlan Ellison's uh, story about that, and I've, I've seen some other writings from people that, that have said that um, that Hubbard said something along those lines, you know, start a religion, that's where the money is, or I'm, I, I should found a religion because, you know, that's, I could get rich. Apparently he, uh, Russell Miller writes about him, that Hubbard having told a roommate of his that, at that Jack Parsons place in Pasadena. Um, so no, I don't have any doubt believing that Hubbard could have said, you know, or boasted about such a thing or, or asserted something like that in the 1940s and then proceeded to do exactly that by founding, you know, first Dianetics and then Scientology. So was that the only reason he did it? You know, no, I don't think so. But I think that he was definitely uh, needing money. And if he thought that was a way to go about doing it, Hubbard was not above telling, you know, whatever tall tales he needed to, to whoever he needed to, in order to get them to fork over some Benjamins, you know. So, uh, so no, I have no reason to doubt that Hubbard said those things. J.E. Steiner. Chris, did you ever use one of the clear sound listening systems like this? I would love to see a sound test and a disassembly of the clear sound amplifier. I'm guessing it's a cheap amplifier with a Scientology logo and an inflated price tag. Well, you're almost right. Um, and in fact, you're pretty much right on the money. Um, clear sound, for anybody who doesn't know, is something is a technology that exists in, in Scientology. It's a sound um, restoration and filtering or, or clarity system that 
was uh, not invented by L. Ron Hubbard, although it's claimed within the church that he was, you know, the, the, the genius audio master behind clear sound. But it's uh, basically, if you, th this was explained to me, I am not an electronics or audio uh, expert, but I did talk to somebody who is. And, um, and they explained to me how this whole clear sound thing came about. And, it's, and it goes like this. Hubbard recorded thousands of lectures. I mean, upwards somewhere between three, four, maybe even 5,000 lectures. And uh, they were recorded under some of the worst possible conditions you can imagine. I mean, really, really bad. And if, and, uh, you know, and if Hubbard was such an audio master and such a, you know, uh, amazing genius when it comes to audio technology, then why did he record every one of his lectures in such poor, like awful conditions, right? The guy was just a putz. But later on, they had to deal with the fact that all these lectures were given to people over all these years, and the lectures were, you know, shit quality. So now what are we going to do, right? So if we're going to keep selling Dynetics and Scientology to people, then we need all these lectures because they're, they're properties and we can sell them. So they had to start you know, coming up with some audio experts, and, and, and then this was in the 1980s when Golden Era Productions was being established, that they went, okay, yeah, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to really get some sound uh, technology, some sound restoration technology going uh, with people who know what they're doing. And so they brought some technicians on board and they uh, hired some outside firms and, and also, of course, in-house recruited people who knew what they were doing with, with this stuff. And they came up with this clear sound system. And it, the way it was explained to me is it's, is it's just like the Bose headphones, um, which weren't always, the technology of it wasn't always in the headphones, right? Originally, it's a, it's a, it's a process where you filter out the ambient sound in the room so that the person is hearing just the clear music or sound that's being given or presented to them through the, the audio media, right? Whether it's a CD or a cassette tape or a record. Um, and if you can filter out the ambient noise, like when you're in a room, unless you're in a quiet room, like, like literally a room that has been, you know, soundproofed to the nth degree so there is no ambient sound, you're always surrounded by sound. And that sound can be distracting to what you're listening to. So there's technology that will get what the ambient sound in the room is and then feed back in the reverse of that ambient sound so that it cancels it out. And you're just hearing the sound from the medium that you're listening to. Again, the cassette, you know, CD, whatever it is. So clear sound is just a technology that does that. And it's really not any different or any better or worse or, or whatever than, than other techniques that do it, like in a Bose headphone and, or, or earphones. Now, um, now the, the device that is used with the Scientologist CD players that says clear sound amplifier on it, okay, get this, according to my friend, that is a Bose <laughs> sound filter uh, literally, the, the, the circuit board, right, that is inside that thing is the same circuit board copied 
from the Bose system. Now, Bose now builds it into the headphones. So they don't have a separate unit that you have to plug the headphone into as a middleman between you and the CD player, DVD player, cassette player, whatever. But um, Scientology still uses these little, <laughs> these little sound filtering amplifiers. But if you had a pair of Bose headphones, or earphones rather, um, then you'd have the same thing already. You wouldn't need that clear sound thing, right? Uh, apparently Scientology, uh, the church contacted Bose and asked to use the Bose system for their setup, right? For their uh, CD players. And Bose was like, yeah, no, you know, bugger off. And so Scientology was like, oh, okay. And they just took it, opened it up and copied it, right? And that's what's that, that's what that thing is. So that's the answer I have for you on that. According to my uh, friend, the uh, brilliant audio technician who used to work at Gold, so, um, so I hope that helps answer that question. Katie Mooring. I was wondering about the children that grow up within Scientology. How are they legally able to avoid going to regular non-Scientology schools and have time to be in the cadet org or whatever the pre-Sea org for young children is? Okay, I think there's a lot of confusions about the subject of kids and Scientology, and so uh, we're going to need to differentiate a few things here. Um, and I've talked about before the fact that there are different levels of involvement in Scientology. You have public Scientologists who just pay their money and do their courses and do their auditing and they go up the bridge, right? And that's public Scientologists. Then you have staff members, higher level of commitment and obligation. They sign a contract, they work at the churches. And then you have the C organization, which is 24 seven, fully committed. That's all they do all day, every day. And it's a paramilitary group. And that is your highest level of commitment to Scientology. So three levels of this. So now when it comes to kids, Scientologists have kids, right? Public Scientologists have families. They're, they're living their life. They're doing their thing. Those kids are not subject to any Scientology rules. If the parents want to bring the kids into a Scientology church, have them do Scientology courses, have them go to a private Scientology school that they pay for, that's run by Scientologists, that's all up to them. It's totally voluntary, totally 100% on them as to how much their kids are involved in Scientology. I grew up in Scientology, so my involvement in it was actually fairly minimal until I was a teenager. I did a few courses, I didn't really like it, I knew the lingo, I grew up around it, but it really wasn't the thing that I thought I needed to be doing until I changed my mind when I went in at 15 years old and did a personality test. So I went to regular public school all that time. And um, for a very, very, very brief time as a young child, I went to a private Scientology school, which was called an Apple School in the LA area. And, um, but it was too expensive for my parents to keep me going to it and they pulled me out of it. So, so that is basically the level of involvement of Scientology children who are the children of public Scientologists. Now, same with staff members, right? Same, same drill, because staff members are really just public Scientologists who sign a contract and work at the Denver Church of Scientology or the Milano Church of Scientology or you know, the Keokuk Church of Scientology. Their kids don't go to the church and start getting free services and they don't go to the church and get you know, full-time service or something. That's not, they're just regular kids going to regular school. Now, when you get to the C organization is when things get crazy and very, very abusive, especially for the kids. 
because if a person um, joins the C organization, um, they uh, might have kids. And if the kids come in with them, the kids are subject to having to go to school. And, and this has evolved over the years. It's a changing situation, right? So when we talk about kids in the Sea Org in the 1970s or 80s, it's a bit of a different situation than the way the kids are handled now. It's, it's, uh, the kids are kind of discouraged now because there's been so much black, you know, bad PR for the church about kids. Now they're kind of like, eh, I don't think we want to recruit kids into the Sea Org. I don't think we want to bring families into the Sea Org because we don't have anything to do with the kids. Or it's kind of hard to deal with the kids because kids just run around and do what they do, right? So, um, but it wasn't always that way. In the 70s and in the 80s, Sea Org members who were full-time, flat-out, working for the church, would sometimes get pregnant and they would have their kids. And then the Sea Org had to deal with the kids. And so they established nurseries and they established this thing called a cadet org. Uh, you know, the cadet organization that was supposed to deal with these kids. And they put a couple of total, you know, misfit failures in charge of the thing. It was the, you know, the people they could spare to deal with the kids. And so the kids ran around in these awful conditions because the Sea Org didn't give a shit about them. And, um, and the kids were sort of left to their own devices. They were ran a run, running around in the hands of people who didn't know what they were doing. Um, didn't have the money or the resources to, you know, to feed the kids and clothe the kids well and, and take care of the kids. And so the kids were, it was a disaster. And you read books about, um, you know, Jenna uh, Miscavige, uh, David Miscavige's niece, right? She grew up at the uh, Int Ranch. They had ranches set up in Los Angeles and up at the International Base in San Jacinto where they took care of these kids for a while and the conditions were, were just awful and they treated them like little adults um, and uh, not kids, and they uh, basically abused the hell out of them, right? So, so that happened. Then in the 90s, when I was in the Sea Org in Los Angeles, um, it went from that abusive, awful kind of situation to having to make attempts to comply with the law because those kids were now grown up, some of those kids had grown up, and were telling their story, and it was reflecting bad on the church. So the Office of Special Affairs said, okay, we gotta crack down and deal with this. And so the kids who were there started getting schooling. They started putting in a school, and they got, you know, one of the Sea Org members, um, his name was Jesse, got some accreditation, or got some, figured, you know, was, took on a teacher role, and taught the kids and he took them out on field trips and he you know had put a curriculum together and was using Scientology study technology but he was but he had some curriculum of art and history and math and science that he had written and you know honestly I mean from what I observed he had a pretty good head on his shoulders and he really did want these kids to succeed now that's just what I directly observed in Los Angeles I'm not speaking broadly for this is what went down in England or at Flag in Clearwater this is just what I saw in LA. And this was in the late 90s and more into the 2000s, really, is when this really kind of became a thing uh, with the schooling. And at that point, these were these kids were Sea Org members themselves. And we're not talking about five-year-olds, we're talking about, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds. And um, 
And so they would do five hours or six hours or whatever, however many hours were required by law of schooling. And then they would go do post work. And then they were supposed to go to bed at 10 o'clock because that was the law. They were only supposed to work so many hours a day and the office special affairs guys would periodically check in and, and try to make sure they were doing that. But the Sea Org being the Sea Org and the nature of the whole activity being insane, oftentimes, all the time, these kids were dragged around and made to work late, late nights, um, skip school, right? They, you know, did, the school was sort of always, while there was an effort being made by Jesse and by others to try to enforce it and try to put it in, there was the, the, the push-pull of the Sea Org and how, and this, the Sea Org is what it is, which is you got to get everything done now, now, now. And it's like, ah, and, and all this crazy work that gets, that, that gets shoved off on people. So the kids fall into that. And so they wouldn't be at school or they'd skip school or they would, you know, whatever would happen. And, uh, and because the Sea Org was always the most important thing and the school was always the second most important thing. So, um... So that's kind of how that evolved as far as what I saw with my own two eyes. I've heard horrible stories, and I believe almost all of them, from kids who grew up um, prior to this time, like they grew up in the 80s and the early 90s uh, in the Sea Org, had totally different, uh, not totally different, sorry, but um, had totally horrifying experiences um, because this whole school thing wasn't really a thing before that, as I understand it. And the care that was given to these kids was always second, second rate. I don't want to, you know, try to make this school thing that I observed more than what it was. It's just, I'm just telling you what I saw. So that's sort of how it's evolved. And I, and I think, as I understand it, um, and from what I was told as a recruiter when I was recruiting for the Sea Org in the late 2000s, um, you know, 2010, 2011, when I was doing recruitment, uh, we weren't going after kids. We were the, like the lowest age we would go after for somebody was, um, you know, 16 or 17 if we could get their parents' permission. It would depend on whether that was legal or not, whether we could get them to do that. And I think that depended on what state you were in, right? But I, for example, I never tried to recruit somebody who was, you know, 12 or 10 or 11. But I have seen instances of that happen even up to present time. So I know that those rules and guidelines are loosey-goosey depending on how desperate people are. And when you recruit a kid into the Sea Org, then they're going to be subject to the laws and education and stuff, and they're going to need to go to school. So, so this has always been a big, huge problem for the Sea Org, and and uh, and that's how they've you know chosen to deal with it, to you know whatever degree of success that was. I wouldn't say that any of those kids. I wouldn't say that any of them, even the ones who were getting the most attention and really trying, were getting a good education in the Sea Org. That is, that is definitely uh, true. You know, they were getting a curriculum put together by a guy who was in the Sea Org who had no real background in education, no real formal education in education. So he's winging it. And it looked like he was, you know, winging it better than I could wing it. But, you know, would I trust my kids to that? You know, absolutely not. So... You know, that's, uh, 
that's about everything I can tell you about that from my own firsthand experience. But you can find tons of stories uh, on the internet from people like Jenna Miscavige and others who have come forward and told what happened to them as kids. And I could not even pretend to summarize, you know, 10% of that uh, in this short format show like this. So check those things out. Chameleon Starfirefall. Theism versus theism. Competition among sects of religions for members, money, and power. Why are some more successful than others at this? Showmanship. Charisma. Uh, enticing people to be part of what they're doing. And can their showmanship and their charisma appeal to a broad mainstream mass of people? Or is it very, very specific to a small targeted group of people, right? Scientology tends to be targeted to a specific group of people, which is that whole business of finding people who have a ruin, who have something wrong that they're trying to resolve with their life. People don't get into Scientology unless there's something they're trying to handle or something that some big problem they have that they want Scientology to help them address and deal with. Whereas you get somebody, you know, now I don't, I haven't looked deeply into this, but you get somebody like a Joel Osteen who's providing general feel-good uh, ministry, right? I mean, he could be a self-help guru, except that he uses the word Christ and Jesus in, in a lot of his uh, books and talks. And so he's religious, right? But his message is really just, hey, think positive thoughts, do good things, you know, have a plan for your life and everything will be great and God will smile on you, right? This is how I understand Joel Austin to be. And, and he's a, you know, wildly successful uh, minister, right? And, and preacher because he's, he's, his message appeals to a lot of people, right? There's a whole ton of people. They don't listen to him just because there's some specific problem they're trying to solve. They listen to him because they want their whole life to be better and they think that his message will, will give that to them, right? Through, you know, divine inspiration. So I think it has to do with, you know, the target audience of the person who is doing the, the ministering. And I think it has to do with how good looking they are, how presentable they are, how flashy their message is, right? And how much they uh, get across in their communication that they're talking to you. You. You're getting my message right now, right? Kind of thing. They're not talking, you know, that it's a skill to be able to talk to a mass of people, but get all those people to feel like you're talking to them directly, right? That's a thing. And uh, the ones who are really good at it, a lot of people will feel, you know, either the power of the spirit or whatever they're told is what they're feeling that's what they end up thinking they're feeling from that and they go right along with it and go for the ride and start throwing money at the guy uh and the ones who aren't so good at that you know it doesn't get built up very very quickly although they'll find some audience because the fact of the matter is that there's a certain percentage of people out there who will believe anyone and they'll believe anything if you just get it across to them in the right way. So I think that's the, the secret to, um, you know, why some guys have, have some of these religions have, have great big audiences and other ones don't. And, uh, and then, of course, you also have 
multi-generational things, right? I mean, we're talking there about the showmanship and the charisma of the leader, but when you're talking about growing a religion, you also have to start taking into account multi-generational, you know, education, upbringing, right? And, uh, and getting the kids when they're young enough, right? I think they said that, you know, for Bible camps or something is like seven or nine years old or something is the, is the prime age to, to get the kids at, right? It's the, it's the golden year. So, um, so that, that plays into building up a really large scale ministry for a long period of time. You got to be thinking with, with, uh, the kids too. So there you go. And that indicates it is time for our flash answers segment. Here we go. Jake, why is Big Blue blue? Big Blue, of course, refers to the uh, complex of buildings that are painted blue in Los Angeles and the place that I worked for many, many years. And it's blue because L. Ron Hubbard said it needs to be blue. And that's really the long and short of it. He wanted it to stand out. He wanted it to be noticeable for miles around. And so he directed that the buildings be painted blue and that there be a large Scientology sign placed across the um, you know, top of the uh, main building. They used to be the Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Hollywood and, uh, and the church bought it out and, uh, and decided to make a splash by, by making it blue. And maybe also, of course, because blue is you know, somewhat uh, nautical theme, right? Ocean, Sea Org, right? Because it, was, uh, it is a Sea Org base after all. Riggs BF. Dear Chris, you explained how the Church of Scientology losing its tax-exempt status would only be the first step in its downfall. I noticed when you mentioned how other countries handle Scientology on whether or not they have tax-exempt status or are even recognized as a religious organization, you seemed very serious when you mentioned Germany. Was there a particular reason for this? Germany takes Scientology very seriously, and they had it under investigation for a number of years, and they sort of... Uh, are probably doing the best job I, I could think of uh, in terms of the European countries at, at sort of calling Scientology out for what it is. I mean, Russia is doing that as well, but Russia is just so totalitarian that the way they're dealing with it by trying to ban it is not the way to go. So I, I can't really get behind what Russia is doing, even though they, are, they definitely got Scientology's number as well. Um, but Germany, you know, was really known within the world of Scientology as being the, the horrible villain, uh, the suppressive government of Germany, you know, and this kind of thing. But the Germans really, they just have their head on straight about it. And, uh, and, it's, and it's impressive, really. But I don't think I was really trying to single them out for any other reason than that. Nick Aloya. Thanks for another great video. Does the Church of Scientology reg Sea Org members? Say a Sea Org member gets an inheritance out of the blue and chooses to dump it back into the church. Do they obtain some kind of status, at least among other members? Could someone who is rich buy their way up into the hierarchy of the Sea Org? The Church of Scientology is all about making money because it is a money-making scam. So yes, Scientology will definitely reg Sea Org members. I saw it happen all the time. And every time a Sea Org member gets any kind of an inheritance, from a family member dying or a trust fund or whatever, they are heavily, heavily uh, sold, you know, the, the regged, right? They're sat down and they're told, you need to give that money to the church, right? I mean, what are you gonna do with it? And, uh, and no, there is no status that they get for it other than the same status other IAS members get. So maybe they get a 
pin that call you know they're a patron or patron meritorious or patron gloratorious or whatever um, but otherwise no they don't and you, you can't buy your way up the hierarchy of Scientology any more than you can the hierarchy of the army or the navy it doesn't really work that way so um, so that's that's how that goes okay guys that's our show for this week I hope you found these answers informative educational and entertaining Thanks for coming around. Leave me any comments, criticism, feedback, good, bad, sideways in the section in the notes below there. And uh, again, check out the Critical Merchandise because it's there for you guys. And, uh, and I hope you enjoy what you see. So I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.